From the West Australian, it's Friday the 15th of December. I'm Ben O'Shea and this is The West Live. The West Live. The West Live with Ben O'Shea. The US Congress has passed legislation allowing the country to sell Virginia-class nuclear submarines to Australia under the AUKUS Security Pact. Sweeping legislation covering a wide range of military priorities, including AUKUS, passed the US House of Representatives on Thursday Washington time, a day after it cleared the Senate. We're officially going to be joining the big leagues, and we got a glimpse of what that might look like this week. The US asked Australia to send a Navy warship to the Middle East in response to recent attacks from Iranian-backed rebels in the region. The timing was certainly interesting just after the UN General Assembly demanded an immediate ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war on Tuesday, with Australia one of the 152 countries voting in favour of the non-binding resolution. The US, though, opposed that resolution, and the request for us to supply a warship does kind of feel like they're testing their friendship with us. With AUKUS now full steam ahead, it'll be fascinating to see how that friendship develops from here. Coming up on today's show, a woman who's devoted her life to combating fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And Simon Kadich joins me to talk about the West Test. But first, let's see what's making news. The West Live. Making news. And joining me now in the studio is Sunrise correspondent Matt Tinney. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. How are you going? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. We have made it. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sensing a huskiness, um, a late night perhaps. Well, look, I, I do sound a little bit like uh, Matthew Tinney after Pride <laughs> Weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, sick burn. Uh, and uh, no, uh, well, yeah, I saw you. How at long the have same you been event. keeping that up your I, sleeve? <laughs> I saw you at the same yes. event. We were at the Premier's Christmas drinks yes. last night. Uh, and look, the Premier put on a good show. It was what a good show. Yeah. It was, uh, Everyone was in a great mood, yeah, weren't they? Yeah, it They're was. All very happy. Uh, and, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, curiosity about how uh, Roger Cook, the new Premier, would go at the annual end of year speech, which is a roast of yes. media and politicians, uh, because Mark McGowan was extremely good at it. He was brilliant. Uh, he was a he? natural at roasting people. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I think that was, he waited all year for it as well. It's almost like he needed, you know, like they have on the, you know, late night shows in America, the monologues at the yeah, start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he could do that night after night. Oh, it was so absolutely. good with the delivery. Absolutely. And yeah. that old that old saying that, you know, behind every joke there's a little bit of truth, I think with Mark <laughs> McGowan, it was all truth. It was all truth. <laughs> it was yeah, all yeah, truth. Yeah. Um, whereas Roger Cook is just a nice bloke. Like, he's yeah. a nice guy. He doesn't it's really hard ha- for him to roast. Yeah, he, he's not a natural roast. Uh, he gave it a good uh, crack. I thought he did great. Yeah. I thought he did really, really well. Yeah. Um, of course, we can't, we we can't, can't go into any details because it's all under a cone of silence. Yeah. Uh, so sorry to the listeners. Uh, that's, I'm sure, extremely I don't annoying. Even, I don't even know if we were meant to reveal the existence of a speech or the event itself, well, but we've just done that. We'll have to explain, have to explain <laughs> yeah, my yeah. state, my sorry state this morning. What time did you finish up? Obviously oh, later probably, than me, probably, I think. Probably got home about 11.30ish. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, long day, started at 3.30, so. <laughs> who, were you one of the last left? Yep. Okay, and who can you reveal? Who was, who still was there? the minister that was oh, oh, sort of with you? Most of the, the ministers end? had cleared out by that point. Okay, um, but uh, who was I there think, with you? you? Know, I think Safiotti might have still <laughs> yes, been. Yes, I was going to say. So that's I had a dinner on as well, but I did. I was so busy chatting to Rita that I didn't get. Yeah. I totally almost forgot about the start what, of the dinner. Be a bold, bold Two Italians talking. Bold who journalist who would attempt to go toe to toe at a bar with Rita Safiotti. Oh, let yeah, me just yeah. say. And oh, how was her, she was telling me about her karaoke. 
Oh, um, in Japan? Yeah. Or, yeah. She said uh, Blink-182 is her, like... Is it go-to? Yeah, all the small things. is. Uh, she says it's the best way to yeah, kick off karaoke. Yeah, blood's worth bottling that one. <laughs> um, maybe not today. I'm a bit <laughs> alcoholic. <laughs> and now, the state government, the state government uh, announced a cost-of-living reprieve for families. Initially, I was like, oh, you know... It's a bit stingy, but the more I think about it, the more I like this. After the drinks last <laughs> night, is that why? <laughs> <laughs> this is um, incredible. So, free public transport for five weeks. Yeah. It all starts on Christmas Eve, runs through till January 28. And so, all you need is a smart rider, and you're not going to be charged. All fees waived for uh, public buses, trains, ferries, not just in Perth, right across WA. Yeah. I, I think it's a really good thing. It means people can get out and about and explore different parts of the city. But also, I think it's quite smart because traditionally that period's quite quiet on public mm. transport, right? Perhaps people will get into the habit of yeah. using public transport. So then when it gets to, say, February, when we're paying again, they'll think, actually, you know what? I can, I can just it. get the train or I can just get the bus. You know, there's there's a bit of research that, that suggests that if you made public transport free all year round, the, you'd actually save money in the long run in terms of like wear and tear on the roads, reduction in accidents, and all of that kind of stuff. Like mm. that, that, you'd be a net saving to the economy. Um, you know, over the you know a couple of hundred million that you'd spend on free public. So transport. why don't they do it? I think it's, it's just hard to you know you know what governments are like. I think it's hard yeah. to just give something away for free. Yeah. Um, uh, and then you know you hope to get the money back on the back end, but it's, you know it's not like someone's giving you a, a here you go here's yeah. here's one point six billion dollars that you saved. Uh, so yeah, but I think this is fantastic, and It'd I be hope interesting to see the data it. at the end, yeah, because they'll be able to tell yep. it from the smart riders. Yep. I think it's going to be really good. Uh, and it's really good uh, at one of Perth's public primary schools, which has been named one of the best performing schools in the state, according to NAPLAN. Yeah, South Hall's Head Primary School in Mandurah is among the 20 schools highlighted for student achievements in reading, writing and maths. So students have turned 20 schools in WA into high performers in this year's NAPLAN. And from today, parents can see how their own child's school did on the national test on the My School website and you can see the list of the full 20 high performers in the West Australian today. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you a little bit of a teaser. Applecross Senior High School was one of them. Yep. Uh, Australian Islamic College in Dianella and Dale, which is a great result. Uh, and then let me just pull one more out. Uh, let's see. Uh, Willerton Senior High School, which is, you know, it's, we know that's a pretty good school, and mm. Ross Moyne as well. So a couple of schools there that we expect. You would expect, A few yeah. surprises. Um, very interesting indeed, and great work to all those kids finishing off the year on a bit of a high note, and yeah. I'm sure the principal's also pretty stoked. I d look, I always think, though, this is NAPLAN, right? Yeah. Like, it, it's not the be-all yeah, and yeah, end-all, right. and, it's, and it's one measure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's important to, to mention that indeed. And now, a woman <laughs> yep. has How been... is it? I'm being sceptical yeah, today, yeah, yeah. <laughs> playing the role of <laughs> I, the sceptic. I just don't have the energy. <laughs> uh, and now, a woman has been hit with a whopping hotel bill um, after she had an issue <laughs> with a hairdryer. I love this story. $1,400, that's how much this Perth hotel guest was charged after blow-drying her hair triggered a false fire alarm. 
So it happened at uh, the Novotel Langley Hotel. Firefighters established uh, this guest's top-of-the-range Dyson hairdryer had set off the fire alarm. The hotel passed on the false fire alarm call-out fee, plus an extra $63, we're not sure why, and uh, they took it directly out of the guest's <laughs> bank account, sent her bank account into negative. She obviously was not very happy about it, and after emails from that guest and from Seven West Media, the hotel has decided to refund that charge. Funny that. Um, because, what, would the fire department have charged the Novotel for a call-out? Yes, yes, ah, so that's okay, how it I works. See, I see, yeah. and, and But do you know how this, uh, this same even thing happened? Same thing happens did here. The, did the hairdryer catch on fire, or was it just like an electrical thing? Look, don't know exactly. Yeah. I doubt that it actually caught yeah. on fire, but something's how, obviously... Why would you be Something's surprised? triggered the, the alarm. <laughs> maybe it was, you know... I don't know. Maybe yeah, it was a particularly exciting yeah, hairdo. Like I don't know. Maybe it or something because yeah. it's like if, yeah. if your hairdryer actually caught on fire or started smoking, surely you wouldn't be surprised when the uh, you know the yeah. fire alarm went you off. You wouldn't expect that from a top-of-the-range Dyson either. No, no, no. not indeed. Uh, well, Maddie, well, let's get you up a bit later on for the Wild West. Yes, see you soon. Last year in Australia, there were more children born with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder than with autism spectrum disorder, spina bifida, cerebral palsy and Down syndrome combined, making it the leading cause of non-genetic disability in the country. Our next guest has made it her mission to do something about it. And this week, she's been recognised with an honorary doctorate from the University of WA. Sue Myers, thanks for joining me on The West Live. Thank you very much for having me. And so when did you first become aware of FASD? I first became aware of FASD when our foster daughter was 10 years old. Um, so that was back in about 1990. And I read an article uh, in a magazine. I was in a waiting room at the doctor's surgery and we were having all sorts of troubles with her at that stage. Um, she wasn't learning the way other children learnt. She wasn't responding to parenting ways that we would use, we had used very successfully with our other children. And um, we were just really, really concerned about how we were going to move forward. And I read an article and it just hit home. I thought, oh my goodness, I'm reading about, this, this, is, this is our daughter. Um, I've, I've found the answers. Now all we have to do is go and get a diagnosis. I knew she'd been exposed to alcohol um, uh, during, during her mum's pregnancy. And um, so, yes, I, I, off I went to the uh, Women's and Children's Hospital and uh, to, to the gene genetics clinic. And they did all sorts of... Um, measurements and, and they were sp specifically looking for facial features and she didn't have all of those features so they said oh no she hasn't got it was called fetal alcohol syndrome back in those days she hasn't got fetal alcohol syndrome which is a specific um, disorder that that has specific facial features but we know now that only 10 percent of um, children with FASD will have those facial features but back then that wasn't recognized and so I was really sent away with nothing. And that was, you know, it was no help at all. And I started going online to search for more information and I found um, a lot of support from overseas and that's how we moved on from there. Mm. And so for people who aren't completely familiar or don't have any experience with FASD, can you give us an idea of how that impacts a child? 
So it impacts them physically, it impacts their, there can be physical effects, um, it impacts their um, learning, um, but they may or may not have an intellectual disability. Some have um, an IQ that's very much in the normal range, even, even higher, um, but in particular it in, impacts their um, behaviours. Um, the part of the brain that that's responsible for their behaviours is what's impacted probably the most. And that the children that don't learn from cause and effect, um, they, they can be very, very impulsive. They, um, they can't take what they learn in one situation into a new situation, so they might learn something one day, but it's gone the next. Um, so it makes parenting very, very difficult. Um, most of our parenting styles depend on children learning from their mistakes, and these are children that really find that very, very difficult. Mm. And then through your own personal experience, you established the first support group uh, for parents uh, dealing with FASD in Australia, and that was renamed uh, the National Organisation for Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders, so no FASD. Uh, and now yes. tell me, now all of these years later, um, you've been a tireless advocate in this space. Uh, what is the situation like now if a parent were to get a diagnosis of their child of FASD, how different is it today than it was when you first experienced it in 1982? Right, very, very different. <laughs> so we didn't get our diagnosis until 1999 um, and that was from overseas. So that's why I um, founded the organisation. I came back from a conference overseas. I was blown away by the help and support over there and I thought, why did I have to go all the way to Canada to get information and support that should have been available in Australia? Um, so I founded the organisation and I wrote um, hundreds of letters that I sent all over Australia to people who I thought should be taking responsibility. And once they, they I, I wrote a report about the conference and compared the situation in Canada to the situation I'd found in South Australia trying to get help and support. And naively thought once everybody read that report, um, that'd be the end of it. And that was really only the beginning of a very long journey. So it took probably uh, another, I had some initial support probably about two, one or two years after I started the organisation. I had some initial support from some very highly respected um, uh paediatricians and clinicians, um, Professor Elizabeth Elliott and Professor Carol Bauer, who started the ball rolling, but still to get traction, it, it took probably until about 2015 until we um, got, the organisation got its first funding. So since that first funding, we've really been able to get some traction. And so apparent today, there are diagnostic clinics available in every state. However, the waiting list is really, really long. There's still a reluctance by a lot of clinicians to diagnose because they're concerned about stigma, mm. um, which is a big issue. But um, by misdiagnosing or diagnosing or, or not diagnosing at all, what we're missing out on is just such a prime opportunity to have prevention um, and if we're not going to diagnose we're not going to realise the full extent of the problem and we'll never have 
will never have enough effort put into prevention. Yeah, that's why it was so great to have you on The West Live today to raise awareness, a, a job that you will continue to do. I've got no doubt about that. Sue Myers, founder of the National Organisation for Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders. Congratulations on your honorary doctorate from UWA and uh, keep fighting the good fight and helping parents and more importantly, helping children dealing with FASD. Thanks for joining me on The West Live. Thanks so much. The West Test is underway at Optus Stadium and here to help us unpack an exciting day one is Seven Network cricket commentator and former Test opener, Simon Kadich. G'day, Simon. Thanks for joining us on The West Live. My pleasure. And so day one is in the history books. How did you rate it? Did Australia get through with a par score with a loss of five wickets and about 350 runs on the board? Yeah, look, I think the fact that they uh, lost a couple of late wickets, th that wasn't ideal. I think they would have loved to have gone in at stumps, obviously, probably three down. But losing Travis Head and David Warner late, that happens because they both take the game on. And in a way, that's why Australia, you know, just under 350 in a day. So the scoring rate was brilliant. Obviously, David Warner was brilliant scoring his 26 test 100, uh, given all the scrutiny leading into the series. So, um, you know, when, when Australia looked back yesterday, they'll be pretty pleased with their efforts and know that, you know, hopefully they can get another partnership uh, once they get through this second new ball this morning and, and potentially uh, build that lead well over 400. Yeah, you mentioned David Warner, definitely one of the highlights of day one. He scored 26 tonnes, as you said, at the test level. That one yesterday looked particularly sweet to Warner. Um, there's been obviously some commentary from Mitch Johnson in the media. What do you think that meant to him uh, to get that knock yesterday? Well, just judging by his comments after the play yesterday, there's no doubt that it meant a huge amount because... Yeah, his, his spot's been under pressure for probably the last 12 months or so just because of the fact that, you know, his performances haven't been as high as they have um, in previous times in his career. And, and that's what happens at test level at times. If you don't live up to your own expectations and, and averages that he's set over such a long and, and wonderful career, um, people start asking those questions. But, you know, he's answered them firmly yesterday and I, I don't think there's any doubt now whatsoever that he uh, will have his final test in Sydney um, in the third test against Pakistan in the new year. So, you know, when you get 164 on day one and set the team up for, you know, what should be a, a very big first innings total, uh, he's done exactly, you know, what he's done throughout his career, which is score at a quick rate and put pressure on the opposition. Yeah, absolutely. He's always been a boom or bust player, but when he's got a head of steam up, geez, there's uh, not many in the world that can keep up with him. Would you expect now that this form will continue through summer? Obviously, it's pretty hard to guarantee, but uh, when he does play confidently, he does seem to be pretty unstoppable. Yeah, I, I was confident before play essay when, when asked about it all that, you know, I think he'll get runs this summer because... When you look at his, historically, his record here in Australia is very, very good. He averages over 58, which is phenomenal. He loves these conditions. He knows the wickets inside out. And the other part of this is that he's got such a strong record against Pakistan. Um, you know, he got that 335 not out in Adelaide, I think, three or four years ago. So he, he knows, you know, how to make big runs against Pakistan. He's got their measure. And this is an inexperienced Pakistan attack. You know, two debutants yesterday, who I thought toiled pretty well for young kids um, at that level and, and got their rewards with their first test wickets late in the day. But um, overall, David Warner's yeah, too strong in these conditions for this Pakistan attack and, and obviously got off to a great start yesterday. So I wouldn't be surprised if he, uh, he goes to Melbourne and Sydney and keeps having a, you know, a bumper summer.
Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me either. And uh, after day one, what did you make of the pitch at Optus Stadium? Yeah, I thought it was really good. Uh, I think that, you know, looking at it before play, it had a little bit less grass on it than previous years. I think um, there's eight mils of grass on it, but it was very even coverage. There didn't look like there was many um, runner cracks underneath the surface, but that might change over the next few days uh, if we get some warm weather. But I think the forecast here is sort of around, you know, 30, 31. So I don't think it's overly hot. And it looked and, and played like a very good wicket yesterday. There was a little bit of spin there. Uh, for Salwan, who got one to spin past Warner, and, and unfortunately they missed out the stumping from Pakistan's perspective. But I think Nathan Lyon will enjoy bowling here, and, and I won't be surprised if he gets his 500th test wicket. He's only four away. Uh, but I think the Australian quicks will bowl a much better line and length on this wicket to the Pakistan batsmen. Uh, they'll be much more consistent. I think Pakistan, when they got it right yesterday, the ball did a little bit off the seam, and there was good carry and bounce at times, but they just weren't consistent enough with their lengths. And, and as a result, they paid the price. Yeah, I think the Aussie bowling lineup will be relishing the chance to get the ball in hand. And as you mentioned, uh, if Lyon gets his 500th wicket, what a great piece of cricketing history that will be for Optus Stadium. So what's your prediction for day two? Look, I think that uh, Mitch Marsh and Alex Carey got a big job to do this morning. I think Australia will come out and they'll just play as they see it. I don't think they'll go out there with any set plan to sort of try and score quickly or anything like that. I think they'll just try and nullify that second new ball, get themselves in, because these two have got big opportunities to to really nail down their spots. Mitch Marsh has just come back into the team at the expense of Cameron Green, you know, late in the Ashes series, uh, made a magnificent 100 at Headingley, and then, you know, Alex Carey's had a tough time of it in recent times, uh, particularly with the bat in the Ashes and then and also in India earlier in the year. So he'll be wanting to make sure that, you know, he goes out there and, and gets in a partnership with Mitch. And, and the Australian tail can back. So I think Australia will be trying to look at least to get 450-plus. And, and if these two get in, potentially even 500. And uh, you see this one going into day five? Well, I think it would be a big ask for the Pakistan batsmen to be able to take it into day five. But, look, they've got some good talent in their batting lineup. It's just whether they can adapt to these conditions. When you look at their numbers, um, Abdullah Shafiq averages over 50 in Test cricket. Uh, so does Saw Shaquille. So uh, Bubba Azam's a, a wonderful player at number four. So they've got some talent there. It's just whether they can cope with this Australian attack in these conditions where there's some pace and bounce in this track. So, look, if they can get set at their top four and, and one of them goes on and gets 100, then I do think they can take the game into day four or five. But... Um, I think it'll be a big ask for them against our attack because it's relentless, it's highly experienced and they know how to bowl well on this Perth Stadium track. Yeah, I expect those Pakistani top-order averages to go down quite considerably uh, <laughs> after a summer on Australian decks against our pretty vaunted uh, fast bowling attack. Uh, seven network cricket commentator and former test opener, all-round legend Simon Kadich. Thanks for joining us on The West Live. My pleasure. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. A martini, shaken, not stirred. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Two scoops, sir? Two, make it three. I'm not driving. Yes, it's time for our Friday foodie. Joining me now on the show is Chief Features writer for the West Australian and our food critic, Simon Collins. G'day, Simo. How you doing? 
Yeah, good, man. How's things? Yeah, yeah. Plugging away. Getting towards the end of the year. It's, you know how it goes. Uh, and now, yeah. to celebrate the end of the year, you've got a very special article in Play Magazine on Saturday. You've counted through the A to Z of Perth food this year. Yeah, I thought I'd uh, stir the uh, alphabet soup up and see what... Uh yeah, see what the, uh, well, we're going to mix metaphors here, see what the TLA's told me about the year. Uh, <laughs> Looking to the past. Can I just can um, I just throw some yeah. letters out there and see what you've got? Yeah, sure. Sure, sure. X. X. Let me find X. What do you for X? I see. I knew I'd, I'd get you on this one. Oh, X, X, XPA, kind of. Oh. Just a little bit. Of course. Looks at the, um, at the popular craft beer style that... Uh, yeah, beloved by WA drinkers, probably not quite as much as the um, as pilsners and lagers, which are making a huge comeback. So, yeah, P was pilsner and X was XPA, so I covered a couple with with uh, with craft beer. And so, what what are some <laughs> of the what are some of the uh, the letters that uh, really speak to the year in food in Perth? Oh, well, <laughs> S is for Scotch eggs. Yes, um, yeah, I see them everywhere. Yeah, like little little bars are. Um, uh, are really, yeah, pumping them out. They, they're a fantastic little bar snack. Um, very trade people. People love them. Uh, great with a bit of brown sauce. Um, and that sort of taps into W, which is for wine bars. <laughs> Perth just couldn't get enough of them. They're sort of, they become the new the new local. So every suburb worth its salt gets a little a little wine bar from like Bassendine to, mm. um, to Beaconsfield. Um, and... Um, Oh, what else is a good one? I mean, Victoria. Sometimes I tap into areas like Big Park or or Bustleton. It seems to go from uh, strength to strength. Um, you know, with these alphabet things, you you know, fudge it a little bit sometimes. And R for Rocky, Rocky View Road. So I get to talk about uh, you know, S was taken by Scotch eggs. Very very important. Um, so R became uh, Rocky Rocky Road. Um, and um, you know, sometimes it's it's uh, positive. Sometimes it's D is for delays or uh, L is for liquidation. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, which is which is a story as well, right? It's it's we forget sometimes in all of the new openings and the fun of of being at some of those cool new joints that uh, there are people at the other end of the spectrum who are being forced to close their business. It is a tough industry at times, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. There's um, yeah, I think we're opening more than we're closing, which is probably a good sign. And and WA definitely when it comes comes to uh, to bars um, and pubs, we're doing like, we're doing well. Much better than the rest of the country. Yeah, I think you're right there. And now talking about new openings, this you had this story earlier this week, um, and I was fascinated to read it. Uh, a new joint is opening up in South Perth from a team who has built quite a reputation for opening uh, big, sprawling venues uh, that offer a lot to punters. Yeah, well, I'm talking about the, the station in South Perth, which is not without its controversy because it's... Um, it's in the uh, it's on the ground floor of the um, Civic Heart redevelopment that took seven years, and for the state government to override local um, local authorities to uh, to before they could Finbar could even uh, yeah, put a shovel in the ground. Um, but the station is called the station because it's built around a it's like a contemporary pub built around a 1908 heritage listed police station, and so heaps of our fresco areas there on the corner of um, Men's and Labashire Roads in South Perth. But the real, I mean, the pub looks really good, and I'm really excited about that. But what's really the, the, the wow factor here is they've, they've managed to dig a basement underneath the police station, and they put in a 140-seat French restaurant called uh, called Ludo. I mean, they're calling it 
European because I want to sort of hedge their bets a little bit, but it feels very French to me. And um, yeah, they've got uh, French French chef Ludovic Mulot in there, who's um, came to WA. Um, he's originally from the Loire Valley, but he came to WA to help open the Rockpool Bar and Grill at Crown. Mm-hmm. Uh, heaps of experience, and his dishes are um, well, things like a lobster, lobstery clare, um, and some real kind of authentic authentic food there. But we you know with a bit of a fun twist and heaps of wines and um, yeah, yeah. They say it's not a fine diner, but to me it feels like a pretty sort of special place. Yeah, fantastic. Like, I can't wait because, you know, this is, you know, the Nocturnal crew. Uh, yes. they've, got, well, they've got Old Synagogue in Frio, um, the Beaufort in Mount Lawley. They've got the lease on um, Yagan Square redevelopment. That's correct, isn't it? Yep. That's massive. They've got a 30-year lease on um, having another crack at Yagan Square, which will be, it's been rebranded at Stories, and they're hoping to open that in March next year, but, uh, you know, D is for delays. Yeah. Um, and, but there are just a couple of youngish blokes Drew, Drew Flanagan and Ross Drennan, they met playing cricket at school um, and they um, and they started off, their first ever thing was like a New Year's Day, sorry, New Year's Eve um, beer festival. They have the Oktoberfest and then they sort of got wind of this, you know, of what was happening with the old synagogue in Frio and thought, well, what's better than a one-day festival is an all-year-round festival and the synagogue, despite opening just before the pandemic, it was over three months before the pandemic sort of shut everything down. Um, in that three months, they saw that it was going to wash its face and it was going to do very well, and it did. And the Beaufort's also gone gangbusters. And so after those two very successful uh, precincts, like they're sort of multi-venue venues, um, they've, um, yeah, they've, they've pushed the boat out again and um, with the station and uh, and then uh, Yagan Square slash Stories, which will be... Um, that you know, that could really be make or break for them. Really, it could bring the whole empire down if it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like it not is to be, not to be too dramatic. Yeah, you got to risk it. You got to risk it for the biscuit, which is yep. uh, an appropriate yep. uh, hospitality <laughs> metaphor. Uh, Simo, we're going to let you go now. But uh, what do you reckon about coming back next week and giving us, uh, you know, your top five new openings of twenty twenty three? Sure, sure. That should be uh, should be pretty easy. I'll pick five of the. 500 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And next time I'll give you some warning off air instead of putting you on the spot. But that's how we do it at the West Live. That's we right. don't like to give our guests that's any right. chances. Uh, <laughs> Simon Collins, Chief Features Writer at the West and Food Critic. Thanks for being our Friday foodie on the West Live. Ciao, ciao. The Wild West. And joining me back in the studio is Sunrise correspondent Matt Tinney. G'day, mate. G'day, mate. My last Wild West for 2023. Yes, yeah, so you're getting a bit of an early mark, so we won't talk about that. It's quite annoying Well, for the rest oh, of us who on. have to... Hang on a minute. Hang on. Can we just hold fire here? You're getting a very late... I'll be back here toiling oh, oh, yeah, away fair, fair. while you're sort of... Yes, yeah, swatting, swatting about. about. Yeah, no, fair enough. Fair For enough. weeks yeah, after. Yeah, that's right. No, you are a hard worker. There's no doubt about it. We appreciate you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Is that why this champagne's sitting here? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> And we, in fact, we appreciate we, you. We appreciate you so much that we decided to devote uh, your last Wild West for the year to your favourite topic, Taylor Swift. Uh, it was Tay Tay's birthday this week. 
34th birthday. Can you believe that? She's getting amazing success. Yeah. I mean, but when you look in the... I mean, she's young, obviously, but in the music industry, like 34... 34 is not that young. Not that in young. In the music industry. Um, so she hit the town with her best friends to celebrate her 34th birthday. Um, she was with Blake Lively. They were seen stepping out in New York um, in matching black outfits, sort of like that emoji, nice. the twinsy emoji. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they'd grab dinner and headed out for the night at a club. Um, she also invited Miles Teller and his wife, actress model uh, Kelly Sperry, um, and Taylor Swift dazzled uh, in a sequin dress featuring a crescent moon and star design. Yeah, and she looked pretty no, fantastic. Now, I know you're wondering. Yeah, was Travis Kelsey there? No. Oh. But I'm told he threw a special day for oh, Swift. Yeah. Oh, so they did something. They did a little they romantic did that little thing. thing on their do, you know, own. do you know what I've seen that's a bit weird when it the comes to Taylor Swift? The pictures are actually on her Instagram too. <laughs> when it comes to Taylor Swift. So I've seen mm. Swifties that I follow on Instagram refer to her as mother. I, uh, I, Have you seen I, that? Like, yeah, happy but I birthday, think, mother? Yeah, but I think people do that. With, like, they do it with Lady Gaga, too. It's, it's a term of endearment. Yeah. Well, it's like, you are my queen. Yeah. yeah. Queen? Ur- Urban Fine. dictionary. Mother? Well, look, it's talking, it's just talking a, about... It's just a term. It's like the rears. It's like Cosy Libs. We have, a, we have a term of endearment for you. We've got oh. a Christmas present for Matthew Tinney. It's nicely wrapped by my producer, Mel. And Should I'm just going to pass it, it on. You have to open it on air. <laughs> Thank you. As noisily as possible, otherwise it'll Is be terrible radio. Is this another present here? Yeah, yeah, that's for you as well. Oh, thank you. We thank appreciate what you do. Oh, we're oh, not obviously so we're not obviously paying you Is any that money. Because I don't get paid you for do, it, <laughs> and you have to Additional walk up duties. and down the up and down the stairs. I know. Like it. Oh my. <laughs> What I've got here, everybody, is the essential Taylor Swift fan book. Her tour, <laughs> her songs, her story. Thank you so much. Oh, my God, I'm going to take this with me on holiday. Oh, I'm going to really have to study this. <laughs> I think it might be. All a- about the era's tour. <laughs> aimed, aimed at people who are maybe like 12 to 14 years old. But- yeah, but do you know, do you know what? Um, Mike's wife always said that I did have the musical taste of a 12-year-old girl. So this is and on brand That's right up me. your alley. Very much well, so. Well, there you go. Thank you so much. Oh, my God, how to write songs the Swift way. Yeah. I might come back in January with a few bangers. Oh, we'll love to see that. Uh, Matthew Tinney, thank you so <laughs> thank much you for much. all your hard work this year. You have a Merry Christmas and, and uh, a safe one with your family uh, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you in the new year. Thank you so much and thank you to everybody who listens to the West Live. It's just an absolute joy to come up here and not get paid but I can see you've got me some <laughs> Moed and Roses so there that's, you, go. you know, fair compo. <laughs> You've been listening to The West Live with Ben O'Shea. If the story behind the story matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver.